welcome to Forward Physio, the show that gives you high-quality information about injury and rehabilitation, performance, and health. My name is Noah Mandel, and I'm a resident physiotherapist from Toronto, Canada. I created this podcast to provide you with educational content, not medical advice. Please seek advice from a qualified healthcare professional if you are currently dealing with a health-related concern. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a review. I would deeply appreciate it, and you would also be doing your part in helping the podcast grow so that we can provide this information to more and more people. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Today, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with the one and only Alan Aragon. Alan is a nutrition researcher and an educator who has over 30 years of experience in the field. When it comes to experts in nutrition or fitness, Alan is one of the first people that I think of. He has helped conduct and write countless research articles. He's written a couple books on nutrition, but he is probably most well known for his research review that he has been doing since 2008. For the last 15 years, Alan, as well as some people that he recruits, have been breaking down the latest research in the fields of nutrition and fitness. So needless to say, he has read a lot of research and he is one of the most notable figures in the world of evidence-based nutrition and fitness. The science and application of exercise science and nutrition are often very important when it comes to managing patients in a physical therapy setting. So today, Alan and I discussed the most important things to consider for someone who is trying to grow muscle. And we also discussed very important nutritional principles to consider for people that are recovering from muscle strains or bone breaks or tendon and ligament tears. I feel like we just scratched the surface with this one because these are such broad topics, but Alan has already kindly agreed to do another podcast with me. So if you enjoyed this one, I am pleased to tell you that he will be on the podcast again sometime in the future. Without further ado, I bring to you Alan Aragon. All right, here we go. Alan, thank you once again for coming on and joining me today. I really am so excited to speak to you and pick your brain about you know all things related to hypertrophy and nutrition. Would you mind giving everyone a little bit of an introduction about yourself? Yeah, no problem. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on, Noah, and it's really great to hear that you've been following my work for a number of years, several years. So did you say seven years? Did I hear you correctly? Seven years? I I said several, but it it might be close to seven. (laughs) (laughs) Several, well, several, seven can be the new several as far as I'm concerned. Um, Yeah, man, it's really great to be here. in a nutshell, I am one of the pioneers or one of the forefathers of the evidence-based movement in the nutrition and fitness industry. And so uh, this movement, I guess, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint when it really started, but it, it definitely started gaining momentum about 15 years ago. And over the last decade, it's been pretty well established that, you know, when we're talking about nutrition and exercise, we have to refer to a research evidence base and then cross check that with uh, what we see in the field, because there's still gray areas in the research. And so um, me and 
that's just a very small handful of other guys. We kind of came up in the academic realm and we we're trying to introduce the lay public and kind of the fitness community to that approach of, hey, let's let's look and see what the research evidence says. And then once again, let's fill in the gaps with what we what we see in the field if if there are um, gaps in the knowledge. And and that's basically who I am. I'm I mean I currently I do research full time and in quotes doing research is something that uh, it's a combination of collaborating with other researchers on original work, like original investigations where you literally put trials together, run trials and um, see what happens. <laughs> and then the other part of it is peer reviewing and, and reviewing the other uh, researchers work or the other the work of the others in the community. So um, science is kind of this communal effort where we kind of check each other with the with these uh, cross checks and balances to make sure everybody is is staying honest and as minimally biased as possible. Um, and so I guess I, I guess that that's who I am. I'm, I'm just one of the, the science guys within the industry. And, and the goal has always been to uh, try to help practitioners get better results. So try to ultimately boil down the, the esoteric stuff and distill it down into actionable, principles and protocols that, that professionals and enthusiasts can use to get better results. So mm -hmm. there you go. Yeah. And along those lines with your research review, which what has it been 15 years now since you've been doing it? Yes, sir. 15 years. Yeah. I started it in wow. 2008. Yes. It's wow. yeah, more than 15 years, a long time. Yeah. I remember reading that the research review during COVID, I'm someone who, when I'm not doing anything for a long time, I feel like I, I just don't do well psychologically. It's not great for my mental health. So I feel like I have to be productive. Uh, and in the summer of 2020, your thing was, uh, your, your research review was, was helping to keep me sane. I would wake up every morning and read some of it. And what's wow. great about it what you were saying was uh, how you try and have these practical implications with the research. You try and boil it all down and, and really help people out. And at the end of all of these articles, you know, you talk about the limitations and you, and you really put everything into the bigger picture, which, which I really appreciate. And this whole evidence-based movement. Yeah. It's, it's key. It's so important. And this whole evidence-based movement, everyone listening to this podcast follows me because uh, for, for, you know, for, for a similar thing, they, they appreciate, I think, evidence-based information. And I became that way thanks to you well before I was ever studying physio, because as I was mentioning to you before the podcast started, I used to believe in a lot of pseudoscience when it comes to nutrition um, and stumbling upon you and, and all of your work really helped sort me out and, and help me figure out, Hey, maybe putting butter in coffee is a really stupid idea. <laughs> you know, maybe there's not so much evidence behind that. So since then, I've been much more of a critical thinker and, and understanding the importance of science. So thank you for all of your work. Dude, let me tell you, like hearing that makes me feel like my goal has been accomplished. 
I feel like if, if for some reason I just could not work anymore, like from like after we hang up, I was not allowed to just work anymore. <laughs> I feel like, okay, well, I accomplished what I need to accomplish because the whole goal is to make a positive impact and not just create this massive sea of followers, but to create leaders, you know, to create or and influence people who will raise the bar of the industry, who will carry the torch, so to speak, and bring it to a further height. And I feel like yourself and professionals within your generation, your, your cohort, who are doing the evidence-based thing, just knowing that I influenced that, that, that it really does mean the world to hear that. So, um, and, and, oh, and let me, let me give you a little hilarious story about Bulletproof Coffee. Uh, <laughs> this was a number of years ago, <laughs> number of years ago when Conor McGregor was scheduled to fight Floyd, May Floyd Mayweather. And uh, yeah, yeah. This is when <clears throat> uh, Conor McGregor was still pretty credible as a, as a potentially good boxer, you know, I mean, cause he, mm -hmm. he made a really good impression in mixed martial arts. And so there were a handful of people who had their hopes that Conor might be able to pull an upset with Floyd Mayweather. And, I I will I will drop my ego and admit that I really wanted McGregor to win and I thought he had a chance. And so <laughs> I I I mentioned this on on Facebook and and somebody came in and said, Alan, if um Mayweather wins and you want to stick to, you want to keep to your word that you think Conor McGregor is gonna win. You have to film yourself drinking bulletproof coffee, and so 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 this guy just basically thought of the ultimate humiliating punishment that I could possibly do, and that would be drinking bulletproof coffee publicly. And here's the, the shameful part of the whole story: I I was wrong, you know. Mayweather really schooled um, Conor McGregor, but I just to this day I I haven't like lived up to my word of drinking bulletproof coffee. Oh wow. On, on camera. So I still owe him that like years later, it's yeah. one of the loose ends in my life. I need to get on Facebook and drink bulletproof coffee because I was wrong. Wow. Yeah. Now keep in mind that I did that voluntarily. So <laughs> thanks for setting me straight. <laughs> it's been years for you and you haven't done it yet. And I used to do that, like thinking it was a good idea. So I'm working up the nerve. I'm working up the nerve to do it. And, and somebody just asked me about Bulletproof Coffee recently because yeah. I, I did a post about Dave Asprey uh, saying that oats are peasant food. I saw that. And there's this little this little clip, and then so the the conversation about bulletproof coffee resurfaced, and uh, it's just really really kind of an interesting thing how just genius levels of marketing combined with these bold and just really ridiculous claims, they really can kind of capture the public's um, emotions and and kind of uh, snare their sensibilities into thinking, hey, maybe I need to be doing this. And so yeah. I think that it's, it's very possible for intelligent people to believe unscientific things like before they had been introduced to the, the, the process of scientific thinking.
and and the mm-hmm. I guess the, the the whole project and process of uh, gaining scientific literacy, which takes a lot of work and, and a lot of time and effort. One hundred percent. Yeah, I, I fell for this stuff as I was pursuing a bachelor's of science degree. So yeah, yeah, I I really think that it's people are are really fallible to this sort of thing. So mm-hmm. we have to be mindful of the stuff that we're saying as well. Yep. No doubt about it. So I was saying earlier to you before we started recording as well, that it feels like it's a disservice to have you on just for about an hour or so uh, and and try and talk about all things nutrition and hypertrophy, because obviously these are massive topics. Uh, yes. So I'd like to try and make it as specific to the world of physical therapy as we can. Okay. So cool. you ready and, to and get started? I'm good with, yeah, for sure. I, and I'm good with uh, coming back on the show. You know, I, I really love the topics that you're raising. And, and so you know, if we if we miss some, some good stuff, then we'll pick it up on another occasion. Amazing. Yeah, there could be a round two. All right, but we'll do our best, right? Got it. So the, the first thing, just around the main principles of what are the most important things that you should focus on when it comes to training for muscle hypertrophy. Now for physical therapy, this is potentially relevant when we're dealing with populations who are maybe a patient is coming off of a surgery and they've had a ton of muscle loss. Maybe we are dealing with someone who is older and frail. Uh, so it, it's not that you know people always need to build muscle in order to get out of pain or deal with their injuries, but there are certain times where it is very relevant. So mm-hmm. when it is relevant, what should be what should we really be focusing on if we're trying to get someone to gain some muscle? Yeah, um, keeping in mind the the physical limitations of the person who may be coming off of an injury or a surgery, it's like. Um, one of the great things that has been discovered within the last oh seven ish years with seven to ten years is that um well you know the research on this topic kind of goes back almost 20 years but the so-called hypertrophy range in quotes the six to twelve which would represent like oh uh 65 to 85 ish percent of one rep max um or 70 to 85 ish percent of one rep max that's 6 to 12 range that has been perpetuated in the literature for since kind of since forever you know that's the range that causes hypertrophy that's how it's been portrayed um but it hasn't been since within the last 10 years that researchers really kind of took a look at that question and put it to the test in resistance trained subjects finding in in one case uh for example that 20 to 25 reps it produced similar hypertrophy to 6 to 12 ish and so um there we have a breach of of the rule of the so-called hypertrophy range and it was originally believed that gosh you know if you go much beyond 12, much beyond 15, certainly, well, you're going to compromise your, your ability to gain muscle. And so that has been repeatedly debunked in, in well-designed literature. And, 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 um, there's this one particular study. I do believe it was led by, uh, Schoenfeld 
at all, <laughs> um, <laughs> where they compared a strength type of uh, regimen, th- roughly like below seven reps, and they compared that with a bodybuilding type regimen, which was eight to 15-ish reps. And um, they found similar hypertrophy between the, uh, the, two, the two types of programs. Um, maybe unsurprisingly, maximal strength gain was greater in the powerlifting type of program and local muscular endurance was better in the bodybuilding type, type program. But the interesting finding, which has been replicated a few times, is that hypertrophy is very similar between all these regimens across the uh, loading spectrum. And what that means for people who are recovering from injury or people who are in some, some type of a vulnerable state is that you can use light loads and still potentially maximize rate of hypertrophy. But there's a couple of caveats to that. Number one, when you're using lighter loads, so let's say, I mean, really light, like below 60% of 1RM or even in the 30 to 50% of 1RM where you're looking at 25 to 30 reps per set. When you're going that light, um, it's been shown, I believe, by Phillips and colleagues that you need to take that light weight let light load set to momentary muscular failure in order to have a, a level playing field with training with the heavier loads. In order to achieve the same type of hypertrophy with those light loads, you have to be very conscious about taking those light loads to failure, which is challenging because there's kind of a psychological kind of discomfort point in, in as you approach actual momentary muscular failure that most people will stop at. So um, that's that's one caveat. The other caveat is it is possible to choose loads that are so light that you compromise hypertrophy no matter what. So um, that cutoff point is it has not been pinpointed, but in a dose re- um, in, a, in a graduated loading study, I'm forgetting the lead author, but they compared a 20% of one rep max, so super duper light, basically endless reps, and then 40% and then 80% of, of one rep max. And, and I, there could have been one, one loading um, dose above that. But in any case, the 40 to, no, I don't think there was, the 40 to 80% of one rep max produced hypertrophy to a similar degree. 20% produce less hypertrophy than 40 to 80. And so what that tells us is that somewhere between 40 and 20% of one rep max is a critical threshold where you, the lightness or the, the, the lack of loading compromises a hypertrophic response. And, um, but, you know, we can go directly to other literature showing that 30% of one RM performed similarly to 80% of one RM, um, as far as loading and hypertrophy goes. So as for right now, we're kind of looking at 30% of one RM as being the bottom end of what would still 
potentially maximize muscle hypertrophy if you take those sets to failure. And that, and that would run with the classical loading for hypertrophy being the 65 to 85% of 1RM. Um, but the, there's practical limitations to going that light because each one of your sets is going to take triple the length of the, the classical <laughs> hypertrophy loading scheme. And so potentially your training bout could take double and triple the, the time. Right. But like I said, I mean, if somebody is in a compromised state, then they can not feel like they're compromising things if they're training at roughly half the loads that a normal bodybuilding bro would train at. They would just have to double the reps, triple the reps and in some fringe cases and take it to failure. Right. Okay. Amazing. Thank you for that. So I have a couple of questions uh, based off what you said there. So at 20% 1RM, you said that they didn't gain as much muscles as or as much hypertrophy as the groups that trained yeah. at 40 and 80%. Did they still get some hypertrophy? They did. <laughs> they did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, so that's, that's still possible. Yeah. That is the super okay. interesting part, bro. And, and, um, there, uh, there, there's a bodybuilder from, from, um, maybe 10 years back, Ben Pakulski, Ben Pakulski. And he was famous for the mass of his quads. And mm -hmm. he hit a point where he really needed to even out the top to bottom symmetry of his physique. Cause his legs were just overtaking his upper body. And so he um decided you know what i'm just gonna i'm just gonna cycle i'm just gonna like literally just just bike to keep the legs at, you know in, in some kind of condition so stop training them and they never shrunk right. <laughs> <laughs> despite you know him just laying off the weights because he kept you know he, he cycled them he trained them with just endless reps but there's an uh, it, it's really odd how how super duper high reps can still produce hypertrophy and it's kind of counterintuitive. You would think of the strength endurance yeah. continuum and you think of hypertrophy completely dropping off at, you know, at a certain point towards the endurance side of the strength endurance continuum. But apparently the point where hypertrophy drops off and kind of disappears is way, 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 way into the endurance side of the continuum. So that's something that we didn't always know. Right. Which is good news. Yeah. Yeah. And when we're, when we're dealing with populations that are injured and they can't lift heavy, not all the time, but some people maybe because the higher force production causes more pain or, or whatever explanation we want to give there. Uh, it, it's good to know that even light loads can help them build some muscle. Uh, and it's not always that we need to mm -hmm. optimize things yeah. right away. Right. People aren't, these people often aren't professional bodybuilders. So, so something still, right. still counts. Um, you mentioned at one point that the training close mm -hmm. to failure is really important. If you're going mm -hmm. to these higher rep ranges, if you want to optimize yes. hypertrophy, would you say it's as important as going close to failure with heavier loads? Or is that less important when you're training heavier, let's say 75, 85% of, of your one rep max? Yeah, dude. Um, that is a really interesting question because it, it, it has a technical answer and it has a practical answer. So the technical answer is no, it's not as important. There seems to be um, a greater, I guess, activation that happens when you take lighter loads to failure versus non-failure. 
you know, just coming shy of it. Um, but with the heavier loads in, let's say the six to 12 ish range, um, it's not as important to take it all the way to failure technically, technically. Okay. Now that's the technical answer. The practical answer is most trainees might as well try for failure because what they perceive to be failure, it still ends up being a few reps short of it. And this has actually been demonstrated in the literature. So our sense of self-preservation fundamentally <laughs> prevents us from taking <laughs> stuff to failure naturally. So um, I, right. I would say in a practical sense, in safe movements, you might as well try for failure because you have this kind of internal self-regulator that kind of stops you from really going there anyway. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Now, again, practically speaking, we can't have someone who just got an ACL surgery to test their one rep max, mm -hmm. right? We, we can't, we can't use that figure to base their 20%, their 30%, their 60, whatever. Uh, so practically speaking, how do you think we should go about uh, training with these people? You know, what should we be looking for in the set if we have just met this person? We don't have a good idea of what they're lifting before. Maybe they weren't lifting at all. You know, is there anything that we should be looking for uh, that can help give us an idea of, you know, are these people training in a way that may induce at least some extent of hypertrophy? Um, that'll come down to uh, just progressive increases in, in, in total volume load over time <clears throat> within whatever framework they can work with. So you can take somebody who um, is kind of sub-optimized in their loading capacity as well as their capacity to take sets to a high degree of effort or, or fatigue or failure. So you can take somebody in that scenario where both things are compromised as long as over time they're gaining reps with the, with the same weight that they're using or if they're adding set volume or both as long as that occurs progressively, then they will realize hypertrophic gains and not just strength gains. And, and um, if I may add a little nuance to that. So strength gains kind of happen, I guess you could look at it like, like this. They, they tend to precede size gains because the strength component, there's a huge neurological component to it. There, there's a a whole lot of motor learning going on with strength gains. And, and some people have hypothesized that the reason why power lifters um, can do what they do is merely because of practice, merely because of just mm -hmm. getting the right neurological circuitry going with that particular motor pattern. And with those loads, it's merely practice. There's nothing necessarily special wow. structurally that's going on. It's a neurological practice thing. And so um, if you practice training with heavy ass weights, you're going to be able to lift heavy ass weights. Um, right. So, so basically, um, kind of circling back to what I was originally saying, with newer trainees, with people who are either highly deconditioned or people who are just flat out rank beginners straight off the couch, never trained before, um, their strength gains for the initial time period, for a number of weeks or even months, 
are going to be much more dramatic than their size gains because they're making neurological adaptations very, very rapidly during this time, substantially during this time, whereas their structural and metabolic adaptations are definitely kind of lag behind. And then the size gain, the size gains tend to just lag behind and then follow eventually. And so this is why in the research literature, it's important to look at investigations that involve resistance trained subjects because uh, untrained mm. subjects are going to make all kinds of gains sort of regardless <laughs> of the protocol. And so right. the actual treatment differences can actually be masked by that newbie status. And so, um, uh. so the, the point I wanted to make about your question specifically is that, you know, you can, you can, you can set the person up to gain muscle size and you can program everything great for gaining muscle size. But if the person is untrained or highly deconditioned for a number of months or even years, then their strength gains are going to, they're going to precede the size gains pretty substantially. And, and you'll have to wait quite a bit for um, any, um, for the meaningful uh, differences in, in hypertrophy to happen. And so, and that's not the case with everybody, but it's something to kind of just look out for. And there's ways nutritionally to optimize muscle hypertrophy. And these have to be going on at the same time as uh, the, the training side of things in order for you to really kind of make some headway in, in muscle gains with these sort of vulnerable populations. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to get into the nutrition, but I do want to add something there as well just dealing with injured people seeing them get a lot stronger from session to session especially in the earlier stages i think it gets even murkier uh because yes we're seeing that they're getting stronger because of these these neurological adaptations and this newbie effect but people are also recovering from an injury and sometimes when people are in pain maybe they don't produce as much for uh, as much force or maybe if there's swelling going on, there's there's less inhibition. So uh, sometimes these people could get stronger without doing anything at all. Um, so th that is a, an interesting thing there. Um, it's a good point. So yeah, I, I guess let's dive mm -hmm. into nutrition for for hypertrophy. Then, what do we have to focus on? Okay. Yeah, nutrition <laughs> for hypertrophy can be as simple a framework as get enough protein and eat enough calories. And that applies to a broad range of things, but for, um, recovering from injury, yes, it is about providing your body, the, the, the right raw materials, the protein and the energy to get those processes carried through by the body. Um, so if, if you were to kind of reverse engineer things and, and say, how, how could we make an injury last as long as possible, then what you would do is you would have the person diet really hard, <laughs> just be <laughs> hype, just be severely, severely hypocaloric and make their severely hypocaloric diet, a very low protein diet. And, and this would be a setup for, for slow healing. Um, there, there's a, you know, there's a point of diminishing returns. It's not like you can, just eat as much protein as possible and, and as, as much total daily calories as possible to heal, to really expedite that process. But, 
you certainly want to avoid being in an energy deficit and you would want to eat enough protein to get the job done, which is roughly double the RDA. So the RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, double the RDA, 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, which translates to about 0.7 grams per pound of body weight is what you would want to target to expedite tissue repair. Okay. Yeah. So I, I feel like it, this is a tricky one for physios because we often have to stay within our scope of practice and it's difficult to offer people nutrition advice, but it is really something to be aware of as physios. If we feel like people are in a big calorie deficit and they're not eating enough protein, you know, perhaps that's a good time to get a nutritionist involved. Yeah. Yeah. So that it, it's so, it's so important. It, it is important. Um, I don't, I don't see anybody getting, getting in massive trouble with uh, going outside of their scope if they simply relay those principles or um, <clears throat> people rarely get in trouble for prescribing like a protein gram target per day. Like if you can tell a, a smaller sized person that, Hey, you, you probably need to be consuming close to a hundred grams of protein a day. If you want to hedge your bets in the direction of fast healing and a larger person, you, right. you could tell them you, you may want to make sure you get about 150 grams of protein or more a day in order to mm -hmm. expedite healing. Now, I, I don't, I don't think you, you would get in too, too big a trouble for that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I I also want to challenge the physios here to to think about when this is and isn't as important. So sometimes, you know, people get better, so they recover from pain and injury without their tissues changing too much. Other people who maybe have more of an acute injury, they strained their muscle, they ruptured their Achilles, or they had something more traumatic, maybe they fractured a bone, maybe maybe this stuff is a little bit more relevant. Um, so I guess on that notion, Alan, does the nutrition at all change, whether we're talking about you know someone who tore their muscle, someone who ruptured a ligament mm -hmm. or a tendon, or someone who fractured a bone? Yeah, a lot of the data on this, Noah, is um, speculative. You know, it's just hard to set up a controlled trial where you just have a control group who's uninjured, then you injure the crap out of the experimental group, and then you <laughs> run the experiment for a number of weeks or months, right? You just can't do that. So right. um, observationally and theoretically, we just have to, we have to go on those, those type of those type of things in order to form these practical recommendations. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, um, the body, uh, when, when you're injured, like let's say a bone injury or a ligament tendon, tendon tear, you know, joint injury, uh, it, w it would benefit to provide the, the raw materials for those injuries. And it would benefit to kind of look at nutrition holistically and say, all right, we, we need to make sure we have the full spectrum of essential nutrients in, in abundance in order to uh, cover maybe an elevated need for these things while the body is healing. And so 
you don't lowball protein, um, you don't lowball calories, and in addition, you have to make sure you are getting the full spectrum of essential micronutrients. Um, and then even beyond that, there is a, a pretty good case to build for making sure you're, you're consuming collagen or, or supplementing with it. And that is a, an area of controversy because a, there's a lot of folks who hate the idea of recommending any kind of supplements. You know, they just want to try to get everything through food, through food, through food, <laughs> but not everybody is going to be chewing on the, uh, you know, the neck bones and, and the, you know, not everybody is going to be like e eating yeah. chicken sternum cartilage, you know, when, with their chicken breast. <laughs> so it's like, it's easy enough. <laughs> not everyone. Yeah. Knows. Not everyone. That is easy enough to just supplement with, with collagen. Um, and, and there is enough data in the peer reviewed literature to, to at least at minimum say this stuff won't hurt and it could probably help if we connect the dots. And mm. there is a lot of literature mm -hmm. showing benefit um, towards uh, improvement of uh, chronic pain and even um, improvement of functional capacity. And uh, the big knock on the collagen literature is that it's never compared with some other protein. And uh, who knows why that is? Uh, we, collagen has been studied in the literature for at least vigorously for the last 10, 15 years, but nobody pits it against, hmm. you know, whey or, uh, you know, beef protein or, other, you know, just di different proteins. And I don't know why that is. I think that, for example, the whey industry is is the big producer for, for protein supplementation. So um, just recently, um, whey has been compared to collagen protein for its effects on muscle protein synthesis. And so it was very unsurprising to see whey protein outperform collagen for muscle protein synthesis. And that's because whey just yeah. has a higher proportion of essential amino acids. It has a higher uh, content of the anabolic driving amino acids like, like leucine and the rest of the BCAAs. Um, and so therefore you would expect it to have a greater acute anabolic response at the muscle level. Okay. Big deal. Whey is better for building muscle than collagen. We kind of knew that. Mm -hmm. How about we compare the two for joint related outcomes for, um, tendon related outcomes for, for those kinds of things, even who knows skin related outcomes. Collagen has a rich body of literature on its benefits towards, um, uh, slowing the degradation process of skin as you age. And so thus far, and it's kind of, it is kind of frustrating and it does leave a big question mark. We, we don't have literature directly comparing collagen with our other proteins for connective tissue related outcomes. Um, there's one recent study that compared um, connective tissue within the muscle uh, the, the connective tissue protein synthesis within muscle between whey, placebo, uh, and um, collagen. And there was no difference between those three conditions. 
but that still leaves a big question mark because mm. within mu- muscle is um, the collagen content of muscle is like 5% and the collagen content of joints and, and ligaments and tendons is like 85 plus percent. And so we're kind of, we're not really making the right comparison here. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of a long way, Noah, of, of me saying, if you're not chewing on chicken cartilage and you're not eating the no, you know, the animal nose detail, it's easy enough to just fricking supplement with 10 to 20 grams of collagen a day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do, I personally do that. And if I'm wasting my money, well, Hey, right. so be it. Yeah. I, I don't chew on chicken cartilage on, on my off hours enough. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of coming at it from the perspective of, we don't know for sure, but it seems like it's something that's safe to take and it could be beneficial. It, so it, why not? It absolutely is beneficial, but it just hasn't been compared to okay. other protein sources. So it, it for sure, for sure is okay. beneficial and this result has been very consistent over many studies. Okay. I, I've heard Lane Norton, who's another uh, guy in the evidence-based world of nutrition, uh, say, and I think he might have changed his stance on this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't want to pit anything unfairly against him, okay. but he was arguing against the effectiveness of collagen a while ago. And I think his argument was that when you ingest collagen, or when you ingest protein, Mm -hmm. your body either way will break it down into its respective amino acids. So the building blocks of of these these two things, uh, and then it will distribute those amino acids accordingly. Uh, So his argument there was because it's broken down anyway, it's not that your body will automatically put more collagen elsewhere. Do you have any thoughts on that? Would you have an argument against that? You know, what comes to mind when I say that? Yeah. The argument against that is that there is research explicitly showing that the ingestion of collagen results in collagen fragments that show up in the blood. So tripeptides, not broken down into the individual constituent amino acids, collagen fragments Okay, that make their way and incorporate into the joints and affect the activity of the chondrocytes within the joints. So we have this full mechanistic breadcrumb trail of how collagen works differently than other proteins, aside from merely having more glycine and proline than whey. And glycine and proline are two major amino acid components of of, uh, connective tissue. And so mm-hmm. there you go. Sorry. Data, there you the, go. <laughs> data, the, data, the data are what they are. Oh, and hydroxyproline is unique to collagen peptides and, and it, it is a unique thing to, to collagen. So, you know, there you go. I, I mean, if I'm wasting my money with, with yeah. collagen, so be it. <laughs> I, I, um, right. That's so fascinating. I, I, I've gotten a pretty, really cool. pretty bad injury injuries in my time. I used to have chronic shoulder pain um, and just chronic, you know, like I've hurt everything from top to bottom on myself. I've even hurt, hurt my brain <laughs> emotionally. <laughs> um, <clears throat> collagen, I don't know if collagen worked for that, but it, it certainly, um, yeah, I, I've, I don't think so. I've been pain. I've been pain free and it could well be a, 
placebo effect. It well could be. But then again, mm-hmm. it could not be. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, rolling the, I'm, I'm rolling the dice here and it's really no big deal. Uh, I, I, I try to, when I eat chicken and, and beef and all that stuff, I really do try to eat the cartilage anyway and mm-hmm. um, try to eat the connective tissues anyway, the stuff that people chuck and leave on, on their plates. So I, I really try to eat that stuff anyway. But um, I don't always get around to eating those foods. So um, collagen supplementation, in, in my opinion, is it's just kind of a no-brainer. Cool. Okay. Yeah, I, I eat that stuff too, but I try not to do it in public because you, you might get some weird looks. So if I'm at home and I'm having that sort yeah, of stuff, right. then, yeah, then it's fair game. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you were talking about the um, the effect of skin degradation as well. Is collagen's effectiveness for that just purely out of interest for, for skin and hair? Is that well documented? Um, for skin, there's the most research for, for its effects on skin wrinkling and um spots even and uh just the subjective appearance um it's uh that that's the most active area hair and nails there's there's like smatterings of research showing positive stuff but for skin there's entire systematic reviews and and meta-analyses of of several studies just consistently Mm. showing benefit okay at pretty at pretty low doses too Oh, pretty really? low doses. Don't, yeah. Oh, okay. Worst case scenario here, people get some good skin. Yes. The wor- worst case scenario, you, you end up looking a little bit younger. <laughs> and of course, you know, the, the, once again, the knock on the literature is that, okay, are, are the conditions matched for the protein that you're adding with the extra collagen or, and, and are, is it being directly compared to another protein? Well, the, f- the first part of that is very small doses of collagen have a significant effect doses as, as as low as five grams in some cases like two grams but but typically the range and the dosing range in the literature is like five to 15 ish grams maybe a median dose might be like eight eight grams or 10 grams um you can't rightly say hey man you really pumped up that collagen diet with extra protein with those 10 grams of collagen man that's what that's what did it was the 10 grams no not really mm-hmm. not likely right so there, there's and it's not too far-fetched to imagine that collagen would have an in quote special effect on joints. Like if somebody were to bolster the health of the skeleton, if somebody were to attempt through food or supplementation to increase bone mineral density, you're going to consume calcium rich foods. That's because bone is like a majority calcium and coincidentally, the minority of it is, is collagen. <laughs> So it's this calcium and collagen matrix. And so, uh, you know, people typically don't go up in arms at the idea of eating more calcium or supplementing um, with calcium in order to uh, bolster skeletal health. But for some odd reason, they freaking freak out at the idea of supplementing with collagen for joint health. I, I don't understand it. Yeah. When you put it that way, it makes it seem like it's it's almost common sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a no-brainer. And look, if somebody does the study that gets that's an independent replication, or it's not done by somebody with a bone to pick with collagen, <laughs> showing that I'm wrong, I, I I'll acknowledge it and you know I'll, I'll take it on the chin. Yeah, I know. That's I know fine. you would. 
Um, what, what would be your recommended dose for uh, collagen when it comes to taking it for joint health or, or for uh, collagen or connective tissue repair? Yeah. Um, the research dose dosing range is about through the literature is like five to 20 grams. Uh, the most frequently used dose showing efficacy is 15 grams, but, but efficacy has been shown consistently with like eight to 10 grams as well. So if you're somebody who wants to take a conservative route, then eight to 10 grams is fine. Uh, 20 grams has, has been shown like it just very recently to have, have some extra benefit. But, um, I think that just being on the safe side, you know, if somewhere between 10 to 20 grams a day would probably be taking advantage of the maximal benefits of collagen supplementation. And then there is some debate over what type of collagen to take, you know, there's, um, because there's, there's several different types of collagen within the body and, um, the most common types of collagen in, in the commercially available supplements are the um, type one and three. Uh, and that's typically in, in bovine collagen. And um, I believe that's the most widely produced. And if somebody wanted to target and, and types one and three are abundant in um, skin tendons uh, and um, let me think skin tendons and ligaments that's that's type one and three which most people are getting the, the maximal benefit out of from most of the collagen supplements out there uh the type two collagen is rich in joints specifically so if somebody wanted to target joints specifically um then in theory they would be getting a type two collagen rich supplement um, and they're, they're out there. You just have to kind of dig a little bit, or you can just eat more fish skin and chicken cartilage, which is rich in type two. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. <laughs> you just sit there and chomp on chicken, chicken sternums, you know? Yeah. So it's more so the cartilage that's, that's rich in type two. Um, yes. Okay. And yes. And, and, uh, I also have to say that, uh, the collagen supplements, they typically, and, and tissues in the body as well, they're typically a mix of types. So it's not like you're getting this binary type of isolation of, of different types, depending on the collagen supplement. They're, they're always going to be a mix. There's just higher and lower concentrations of the respective types. And, and frankly, we just, we don't know how different, what, like there isn't nearly enough data, if any, pitting different collagen sources against each other and comparing the effects. So all of this for now is, is, um, just speculative. Mm -hmm. So for all, for all, you know, you'll, you'll be fine just consuming, um, the, the collagen supplements out there, which are primarily rich in types one and three. Okay. Well, I think you've persuaded me. So for now, I think I'm going to be taking <laughs> collagen as well. And, um, you know, if, again, if we're wrong about it, then yeah, I'm happy to take it on the chin as well. You know, it wouldn't be the first time I've admitted I'm wrong before. Here's the thing, dude. Lane would be the perfect guy to take collagen supplements because he 
critically challenges the tensile integrity of his tissues all the time through powerlifting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, he should just what's the th- what's the thing? Is it Pascal's wager? So it is a Pascal's wager where if you and and this gets really kind of hilarious and esoteric, hilariously esoteric. But here's Pascal's wager. You might as well believe in God <laughs> because it's no skin it's no skin off your back to believe in God. And by contrast, if you don't then you, you you might find yourself in eternal hellfire. <laughs> so so I'm gonna um, you know draw a little bit of a parallel for Lane with uh, with with collagen supplementation and the potential benefit on joint health and injury prevention. It's no skin off your back to take it. Just literally take ten do the lower end of the dose, ten grams, all right, and that way. You can engage in your powerlifting career with just the, the knowledge that, hey, I might be maximally preventing the possibility of eternal hellfire from, from injury. <laughs> so I'm going to go on, take a, take on Pascal's wager. I'm going to believe in God, uh, collagen. And I'm just going to do that and no skin off my back. Wow. I was, yeah, that's, I love, I, I love that analogy, but I really wasn't expecting the comparison of college into God today on the podcast, but I'm sort of happy we got here. I, neither was I. I, I, I typically don't wave, weave in Pascal. This is the first time I ever wove in Pascal's wager with a nutritional concept. That was a good use of it. <laughs> so we were talking about bones for a second there, uh, you know, calcium yeah. uh, as one of the fundamental building blocks for bones. If people have a fracture, is there anything that they can do to optimize their healing for that? Are those calories and, and the protein as important when it comes to bone healing? Uh, and, and are there other micronutrients that people should be focusing on? Yeah, for bone healing, um, it is going to be a matter of a, like, I want to say a, a dual matter of getting enough protein and enough uh, bone mineral through the diet. And guess what? Um, bone is, I believe, 25 to 30% collagen. <laughs> <laughs> and there is data showing that collagen improves bone mineral density. Oh, wow. And so... Um, if we were to design a plan to really expedite bone mineralization, we would make sure that the person is getting enough protein, getting enough calcium, uh, getting enough vitamin D, and heck, pepper in some dang collagen in there, and then make sure that the musculoskeletal system is properly and progressively stressed with resistance training. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and, and the remainder of, of the essential micronutrients, they connect the dots, really. So I'm one of these guys who thinks it's really stupid to endeavor to optimize your health, but just kind of skip out on a simple multivitamin. Um, once again, no downside to a mm-hmm. simple multivitamin. It's very inexpensive. Um, and yeah, some people think, okay, well, it's kind of useless, whatever. You pee it out, whatever. And my diet's good enough, whatever. Well, number one, your hey, your diet probably isn't good enough. 
And number two, if you're if you're yeah. dieting for half the year because you want to look all shred shredsville on the gram, you're probably in need of uh, mul- you know multiple nutrient coverage, and you're probably running chronically running multiple nutrient shortfalls. Then uh, you'll most people will do very well with a multivitamin. So add a multi to to that mix if if we want to heal anything, whether it be the muscular system, the skeletal system, um, and just in, just in general, like just looking at things holistically, um, people would need to cover their bases micronutrition wise. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's really interesting about the multivitamin thing, because you always hear people saying that you just pee it out anyway. Uh, so it's good to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's one of those things. Uh, I, is, are those recommendations? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll, I'll remember what I was going to say. Let's get Okay. Okay. I, I was just going to ask if those recommendations are the same for someone who, let's say, like has osteoporosis, for example. So they're not necessarily healing from a fracture, but they still have a condition that their bone health is heavily implicated in. Yeah. So are, are those principles the same there? I would assume they are. Yeah, those principles are the same. Um, depending on how far along someone is in the disease process, they may need to get some medical help and some pharmacological intervention there mm-hmm. with with um, some extra help with bone building. But um, but but yeah, uh, when it comes to the essential nutrients, the essential micronutrients, I, I don't have a problem at all with supplementing them, even at the risk of peeing some of it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked at the literature on this and I compiled it and I wrote a whole chapter, a whole section on, um, wh- whether or not you should consume a simple multi and the weight of the evidence falls on almost <laughs> not exactly a Pascal's wager type of thing. Cause there, there is more <laughs> concrete evidence of, of, uh, there, there is more concrete controlled, uh, data for the evidence of that. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, I, I, it just falls on no one has ever gotten harmed from a multivitamin unless you choked on it or something. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, many people are running chronic low intakes of, of key nutrients, essential nutrients. And this can pretty easily be um, covered through, through a simple multi. And, and if you think about it, when somebody goes on a liquid diet, or even if somebody goes on parenteral or enteral nutrition or tube feeding, there is always the full spectrum of essential micronutrients they're provided with if they're going to be on bed rest and tube fed for a number of months. Why? Because you need it <laughs> and you won't get it otherwise. And so right. most people's diets are terrible in terms of their coverage across the food groups and they're very limited in terms of their diversity within the food groups. So most people are just sort of limping along and subsisting on multiple nutrient shortcomings. And once again, you know, a a multivitamin isn't going to swoop in and make everything perfect, but it will almost always improve that their, their nutrient status. Mm. Yeah. So on that notion of most people struggling with their nutrition, 
it's very likely that the vast majority of patients that come into the clinic or the hospital or wherever you are, they don't have the best diet in the world. So this is something that is worth at least discussing with your patients, not to say that you're going to have the solution to all of their problems, but at least so that you can have a grasp on where they're at when it comes to their nutrition, because it is relevant, of course, thanks to, um, you know, we can see that thanks to this conversation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, Alan, I think uh, that covered a lot and that's a lot of information for people to, to unpack. So I think it's a pretty good time to, to call the podcast at this point. Uh, where can people learn more about you? Uh, where can they connect with you? And are there any resources that you have for people? I know there's a few books. There's the research review. Yes, yes. My website is alanaragon.com. And that's where you can find all of my stuff. My ongoing project is, is, is the research review which has a lot of appeal to professionals and people who are highly engaged. And, you know, they, they like to, interestingly, Noah, I, I have a fair amount of, of lawyers and engineers who are <laughs> subscribed to my really? research review. It's really an odd wow. phenomenon. It's an odd yeah. phenomenon. Um, but, but yeah, that, that's my thing. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, if you're interested in the science end of this thing, I, I do a monthly research review which is like you mentioned at the beginning of, of the podcast is something I've just been doing every month since 2008. Uh, I did write a book recently. Well, it was released last year and it's a book on evidence-based nutrition. It's kind of mistitled flexible dieting, but that's what I, I was encouraged to title it for the, to kind of grab, you know, grab the attention of, of the masses. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, pr I'm proud of that book as well. And as far as, uh, social media, I'm, my biggest audience is on Instagram. So, um, my social media handle is the Alan Aragon and it's the same thing on Twitter, AKA X. <laughs> 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 and so, um, I'm not terribly active on X. Uh, I, I just <laughs> pop in there to, you know, to share things, share articles and stuff. And it's, it's, it's a minefield of, of just bad blood on, on Twitter. It's, it seems, it seems like it's just a kind of a bad for your mental health thing. And the, the more time you spend on Twitter interacting, the faster your mental health will degrade. Uh, or, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's probably something out there. There's something to that. Maybe that should be the next uh, study that you conduct. I know. <laughs> they've, they've, I'm sure they've found that out already if they, if they haven't. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I read your protein book as well, which is uh, another good resource for anyone who wants to learn all things related to protein. It's like uh, it's an ebook only, right? Yeah. It's an ebook. Okay. It's self published. Yeah. yeah. Forgot about that one. Yeah, that that's a good one too. Yeah, it was, and I think uh, I haven't read your your, you know, the the big book, the flexible dieting one. Big so one. that's going to be, I think, the next thing that I read. Oh, awesome, man! Awesome. I'm, I'm like I said, I, I'm proud of that one, and yeah, let let me know, man. Let me know what you think when you get around to it. Yeah, I will. All right. 
Alan, again, thank you so much. I'm sure everyone got a ton of value out of this because we focus so much on pain and injury, and we often forget about the importance of nutrition. And we could always use a little bit of a refresher on our exercise science principles as well. So this was great. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, and it was a pleasure talking to you. Right back at you, Noah. Thank you for all you do in the industry. And Thank you for bringing the evidence-based uh, voice and, and message to the masses. You know, it's really great to see, and, and I would love to do this again. Yeah, me too. All right. Thank you once again for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a review. If you would like to follow me on social media, you can follow me at noahmandel.physio on Instagram and TikTok. Have a wonderful day and remember to keep moving forward.